Hello and welcome to the Media Law Podcast Newscast. Colette, Tom and Paul here to take you through the latest media law headlines. We've got updates from the ongoing mirror litigation and we want to discuss the free speech implications of some of the commentary around the Commons Privilege Committee finding that Boris Johnson had knowingly misled Parliament. So if we start with uh, comments made by the Advisory Committee on Business Appointments, also known as ACOBA, which has condemned the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson for breaking government rules by failing to adequately consult them about his new job as a columnist with the Daily Mail. An ACOBA spokesman explained that the ministerial code states that ministers must ensure that no new appointments are announced or taken up before the committee has been able to provide its advice. An application received 30 minutes before an appointment is announced is a clear breach. There's also been a lot of talk in the right-leaning press and among uh, MPs who support Boris Johnson about the free speech implications in relation to both the new job and his response to the Commons Privilege Committee report. I thought it'd be useful to cut through some of this and provide listeners with some clarity as to what the free speech implications really are with regard to these issues. All right. With the uh, appointment as a columnist for the Daily Mail, um, the rule is in place, not really so that the committee can prevent such appointments, but so that there can be a degree of scrutiny and transparency around their taking place. And it's designed to at least pay lip service to the notion that uh, government ministers shouldn't jump straight into Uh, private sector jobs, either where they can lobby uh, directly on behalf of the government or where they can act as some sort of propaganda tool um, for the government. Boris Johnson has ignored the rule that says uh, he should give uh, a reasonable amount of notice to this committee so that they can scrutinise his appointment before taking up another job. Um, We can just add that to the long list of rules that Boris Johnson thinks don't apply to him. Um, I, I don't think anyone's terribly surprised. I don't think it's going to have any major impact on our politics. It's just yet another uh, instance of Johnson breaking the rules. In respect of the various things that have been said on both sides uh, in the aftermath of the Privileges Committee report, um, there's a lot of back and forth here. So you have, uh, on the one hand, the report and those who are defending it, Johnson's political opponents, who are uh, talking uh, loudly and at great length about the report's contents, as they are absolutely entitled to do, because that report is protected by parliamentary privilege, um, uh, and and all of the facts that are set uh, out in it. Um, You then have uh, individuals including Johnson himself, but also his supporters, who over the weekend between Johnson being given a draft of the report and it being published, a period, incidentally, uh, during which Johnson was not permitted to publish the contents of the report, but published a statement which gave away the contents of the report anyway, which is one of the reasons why, when it was published uh, a few days later, his Uh, the punishment that was recommended had increased substantially from we don't know exactly what, but less than 90 days suspension to a what would have been a 90 day suspension. And since he had resigned as an MP, uh, merely the removal of the parliamentary pass that would normally be granted to ex-MPs. Over that weekend, 
Johnson had engaged in a campaign uh, attacking the integrity of the committee as an institution and of its individual members, uh, particularly uh, Harriet Harman, who was chairing the committee. Uh, he accused her of bias. He accused the committee of bias. He accused it of being a kangaroo court. He accused it of coming to deranged conclusions. Um, his supporters came out and said much the same. And it is uh, incumbent upon us, I think, to discuss whether there could be any liability for these statements. Um, because my view is there certainly could be in principle. Um, None of the statements made by Johnson or his supporters, other than those which were made in the debate itself on Monday uh, about whether to accept the report uh, in, in, in the House of Commons, none of the statements that were made in the media um, or on Twitter by Johnson or his supporters um, were subject to any privilege. And insofar as they traduce the reputation of the individual committee members, it is entirely possible that those statements could be subject to uh, actions in libel, just as any other uh, defamatory statement. Um, I think Johnson will be particularly lucky if he gets away without Harriet Harman issuing uh, libel proceedings against him. She may well decide that he is not worth it, um, and that she's prepared to tolerate the, these sorts of accusations in the rough and tumble of political life. But there's no legal reason why she should uh, uh, have to tolerate these uh, uh, comments, which are, are wildly beyond the normal rough and tumble of uh, at least British politics. Um, accusations of bias and being deranged and presiding over a kangaroo court, they're definitely defamatory. They are, they are highly uh, emotive accusations. Now, where this gets interesting, I think, for the free speech argument, um, is that certain of Johnson's supporters, when they got pushback for these attacks on the committee, um, started complaining that their free speech was being infringed. How dare they not be allowed to criticise the committee? And uh, you had the site of, uh, I watched uh, the newly minted Sir Jacob Rees-Mogg um, uh, on Channel 4 News uh, opining that his freedom of expression was being curtailed um, by those who were uh, suggesting he should not be uh, repeating Johnson's accusations. He said it's incumbent upon members of the House of Commons to scrutinise the work of its committees and to be critical. Um, and he's right that in the Commons chamber, that is indeed the job of uh, members of the House of Commons, though it should be noted that, of course, it was the House that voted by majority to set up the committee uh, in the first place and to determine uh, its uh, terms of reference. Um but uh, this really works only as an argument insofar as the criticism is neutral and temperate, uh, that it is has some basis in fact. And so accusations of deranged decision-making processes, kangaroo courts, this isn't even a court. It has no legal 
procedural basis. It is, the whole point of a Commons Committee is that it is not a legal process. Um, because things that go on in Parliament cannot be scrutinised by the courts because of parliamentary privilege. So they have their own non-judicial processes, entirely political processes, for dealing with misbehaviour in Parliament. That is the point. That is why the work of the committee cannot be judicially reviewed. Um, Because, of course, one of the obvious comebacks, if it were possible to judicially review the committee to the things that Rees Mogg and others were saying, would be if you think that this committee has overreached its powers, judicially review it. And of course, that's not possible. And it's not possible because parliamentary committees are not amenable to judicial review because they operate outside the legal spectrum in that privileged bubble that is uh, parliament. Paul? So I think there's a couple of things to um, pick up as well on, around this issue. I mean, one of which is the basis on which is being asserted that this was a kangaroo court. Um, you, you've touched on one element there, that it exists outside the sort of judicial review process, as it were. Um, but also in the in the idea which has been repeated endlessly, and I don't think sufficiently challenged, that um, something alien to law was happening when the committee tried to determine if Johnson had deliberately misled Parliament. And so we get all this, all this nonsense from um, MPs on TV, which must make every lawyer in the room cringe, that MP, serving MPs think that regular courts can't determine intentionality. In, I mean, that, that must be music to the ears of uh, everyone sat in jail who finds himself there on the basis of uh, not only an actus reus but a mens rea, um, lodging, lodging appeals directly to their MP saying, well, this is a travesty of justice because how could anyone have possibly known uh, what I was thinking at the time? So you've got, you've got one of the more deranged uh, supporters of Boris Johnson saying, well, how could the committee possibly have known what Boris Johnson thought? Did they have a crystal ball? Well, judges themselves are not issued, as far as I know, with a crystal ball, and yet they have to make decisions based on the evidence about intentionality. You're absolutely right, Paul. And you're right that every lawyer in the country looking at these statements will be feeling the same way, because I felt exactly that way, and almost word for word, that was my thoughts on it when I saw this. If you can't determine intentionality by inference from the evidence, then we presumably have to release every single person committed uh, of a criminal offence such as murder that is uh, reliant upon intention as uh, the mental element. Of course courts can determine, any decision maker can determine intentionality. We don't determine it by mind reading. That's impossible. (laughs) So we have a process by which to do it. You infer a person's intention from the evidence. And if the evidence shows that the man was in the building, in the room, next to six bottles of champagne, which I think, counting the people, I mean, I counted up the people in the photographs and the bottles in the photographs, and there was at least a bottle each um, of liquor for these uh, individuals at most of these parties, so far as I can see. And I'm not sure I've ever been at a, a necessary work meeting where I've been allocated an entire bottle plus of alcohol to drink uh, 
I would love it, but you know, uh, academic budgets don't tend to stretch. <laughs> um, you can infer the intentionality to lie from the evidence that is overwhelming that no individual in that situation, even taking into account Boris Johnson's notoriously scattered brain, um, could conceivably have thought that the rules were being followed. Um, it was clearly disingenuous. And that's the word that the committee used. They talked about it being disingenuous. They, 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 the, the view they came to, based on the evidence, is that everything Johnson was saying was disingenuous. Okay. The other thing that I want to come back on is this idea of free speech. I want us to talk about this in perhaps a little bit of, of detail. Uh, we know that freedom of speech in uh, Westminster Palace, um, the Palace of Westminster, is absolute. We can we trot that out all the time. We've talked about it on, on this show before. Uh, freedom of speech in the real world for those MPs is qualified. And Tom, you've already touched on that in the context of defamation. But what I find so incredible around this rhetoric is the effrontery of those MPs that are championing free speech on TV, in the House itself, when not one of them stood up for Dawn Butler or Ian Blackford as they were being ejected from that house for calling Boris Johnson a liar. Now, the Speaker has his conventions. The Speaker has his conventions, his his rules of, of conduct that he has to follow. He followed those conventions in asking both Dawn Butler and Ian Blackford at various points to either retract the statement accusing Johnson of being a liar or otherwise qualify it by saying inadvertently misled the House. Words to that effect. And that's fine. That's that's the Speaker of the House doing his job. None of the Conservative MPs who have subsequently appeared on TV, either at the time or since, have once even questioned the idea that that ejection might be a breach of this freedom of speech notion that they themselves are advocating. Not once. None of them. Calling Boris Johnson a liar in the House was fine, even though they prattle on about their absolute right to freedom of speech. Not one of them has thought to question, well, hang on a minute, why can't, as part of this so-called absolute right, we call Boris Johnson a liar? Why can't we do that? He can respond. He can come to the House and defend himself. None of it. So this disconnect in their own mind, I find troublesome. But I find it increasingly frustrating that freedom of speech has just become this vacuous statement in the hands of politicians. It has no essential meaning for them. It's just a trope that they can throw out there and rely on it to do its own work. Oh, there's something noble about this because he'd use the phrase free speech and therefore what he's standing up to must be really important. Oh, we all agree with free speech, blah, blah, blah. It's utter nonsense and it's time our press, particularly the critical press, starts biting back on this. Start challenging these MPs on what they mean by free speech. Because as far as I can tell, they have no idea what free speech means. 
I completely agree with you, Paul. And it's not just that they failed to stand up for individuals who called Johnson a liar. They failed to stand up for a whole load of assaults on the right to freedom of speech um, it, it, that have taken place in Parliament. They all voted in favour of these restrictive anti-protest laws that were rammed through Parliament a few weeks ago, and which we've talked about extensively on the podcast. Um one of the biggest curtailments on political speech in the recent history of uh, the United Kingdom. And they were all in favor of that. Um, it's, 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 it's something we've, we've happened upon before when we've talked about you know, Dominic Rabb and his proposed changes to defamation law and the, uh, the, the Human Rights Act when he had that in his sights as well. Freedom of expression in the hands of certain of our politicians means freedom of their expression um, and nothing else. Uh, it certainly doesn't mean freedom of their opponent's well, expression. Well, let's talk about that because, as you mentioned, Jacob Rees-Mogg, who I refuse to acknowledge as a sir, had, again, the effrontery to say on Channel 4 that his freedom of speech was under threat. Now, this makes me laugh because it reverts back to that essential trope of cancel culture that anyone that challenges someone else on the basis they dislike their view is somehow cancelling that individual. But the incredibly deep irony that I think we all must acknowledge with Rhys Mogg is the fact that he has his own TV show, which of course no one watches, but he has his own TV show in which he can make all of these points in his little echo chamber to his people without any kind of interruption or interference. So Jacob Rees-Mogg says that his free speech... Yes, and he is said this on live television. Once, once we've stopped laughing, we just need to reflect on that. And again, we need to come back to this idea of freedom of speech. And the debate that I would like to see us have in much greater detail than we do is to think about the propriety, which is not an easy word for me to say, the propriety of standing MPs presenting their own little chat shows on Talk TV and GB News. Now, so far as I understand it, that is not a direct breach of the Ofcom Broadcasting Code because despite having the word news in the title GB News, these segments, these shows, don't technically breach the code because the code prevents serving uh, politicians from delivering news in a very sort of formal and narrow sense. So it stops uh, a, a serving MP from ejecting uh, Hugh Edwards from his chair and sitting in for him and delivering the news to you. And we can understand the logic of that. But the logic is the avoidance of, or the minimization of, propaganda from allowing our broadcasting to become an arm of state propaganda, as we see in those other countries which we tend to criticise from time to time. The Ofcom code is not fit for purpose if it would allow a standing MP to have a chat show in which they themselves can deliver this propaganda under the guise of opinion. 
Because when these politicians deliver this, and we've had many cringeworthy moments with Jacob Rees-Mogg, we have Lee Anderson to look forward to, Nigel Farage, not that he's an actual politician, he's more of a disc jockey, and Nadine Dorries interviewing Boris Johnson in what can only be described as the most embarrassing moment in TV history in which everyone in unison shouted at the screen, get a room. The very idea that none of these things were a breach of the Ofcom code is deeply troubling. And Ofcom needs to reconsider its code. Now, I can't think of any historical precedent for a serving MP who presents their own current affairs TV show in in which they seek to denigrate all opposition and present their own political viewpoints as if it were truth. I did wonder whether Robert Kilroy Silk might have done so when he presented a popular TV show uh, back in the 90s. But Google tells me that he actually left the house in order to start his TV show and present it. And he only came back into politics as an MEP uh, after that show had run its course. It was a bit of a diatribe there, but it felt necessary. I appreciated the 90s nostalgia of bringing Kilroy back into, into, into the forefront of our minds. So what I would appeal for is for us to reconsider Ofcom. Now, it's not just Ofcom, it's Ipso as well, because Ipso also allows serving uh, politicians to write columns for daily newspapers. Now, I'm less optimistic that Ipso would do anything about it, because if we're going to fix Ipso, that's probably not the place where we need to start. There are so many problems with that organisation that it's quite a long list. But Ofcom can still hold its head up, I think, as a truly independent organisation in exactly the same way that the BBC can't. And that's why I would call on Ofcom to review the appropriateness of its code in allowing these serving MPs to proliferate this dreadful propaganda which then gets picked up online and is disseminated far and wide, even to those same people who don't actually watch GB News or talk TV. I think that that's a good place to round up this aspect of the conversation today. I want to briefly mention the statement made by Mr Justice Farncourt in court this week as part of the ongoing claim for unlawful information gathering against the Mirror Group. Mr Justice Farncourt read out a list of over two dozen people that he believes could and should have given evidence. This list included former Daily Mirror editor Piers Morgan and former People editor Neil Wallace. Referring to that pair specifically, Farncourt said that they relatively recently had a lot to say about this matter outside of court. He's also said questions have been raised about why three or four associates of the Duke of Sussex had not given evidence against MGN. What are the implications of commentators like Morgan talking about this case outside of the trial, uh, where there's clear that he does have some sort of connection to the issues? Obviously, the extent of that connection is, is subject to debate. But he's spoken very openly about this case and not subjected himself to questioning in court. 
is there anything that Farm Court can really do about that at this stage? Well, there's nothing the judge can do to make Morgan and others give evidence. If they don't want to, they don't have to. But Fancourt is being asked to make determinations of fact based on the evidence that has been placed before him. Now, on the claimant's side, that evidence has been presented under oath. On the defendant's side, very little seems to have been presented under oath. Um, And it is entirely open to the judge to draw inferences as to uh, the facts of what happened from the apparent refusal of certain individuals to give evidence under oath defending their conduct. Um, It's a nothing-to-hide-nothing-to-fear theory, um, but it's one that is embraced by uh, our legal procedure, and it's entirely open to the judge to do this. It would be entirely proper for the judge to do it. And what I find quite interesting about the statement having been made as it was in open court by the judge is it strongly suggests that the judge is minded to draw inferences uh, about what these individuals got up to. Because as you rightly say, Colette, they're quite happy to speak on camera in public where they're not under oath and say, oh no, I didn't do any of the things that I've been accused of doing. But given the opportunity, as they have been, to put their hand on a Bible and then say the same thing on penalty of perjury if they are lying, they have decided not to. Well, and as uh, listeners will know, um, and Mr Justice Fancourt might well be one of those listeners, who knows? But in an interview that I had with... Um, Neil Wallace on uh, BBC Radio Ulster, which I think I mentioned last time, and I'm going to mention it again. He kept referring back to the absence of hard evidence. I mean, there were two things he was trying to do. He was trying to say that all this um, illegality, it did happen, but it happened 20 years ago. That seemed to be one line of his defence, which is just factually wrong. Um, But also he kept saying, well, there's no hard evidence. There's no hard evidence. And he said it was such authority that it made me wonder why he would know there is no hard evidence. And also what he meant by hard evidence. And again, it comes back to, I think, a misperception amongst non-legal commentators specifically, that witness testimony is evidence. Now, one of the interesting questions, I think, to ask in this context is the extent to which editors serving editors, deputy editors, instructed journalists to destroy evidence, to destroy laptops, phones, etc., that could have any incriminating evidence on it. Now, that's not to say that that definitely happened, but that is a question that I would like to see asked in court. And of course, I asked Neil Wallace that on the uh, radio show that was on. It was entirely appropriate that he chose not to answer. But I think that these are the kind of questions that we are being robbed of as an audience by the failure of these key actors to appear in court. Now, we talk all the time about the public interest in a free press. 
And one of the strongest arguments about the public interest in the free press is that it can, and very often does, act as an important counterweight to power. It reveals things in a public space that demonstrate wrongdoing. But with the press, who is there to reveal wrongdoing if it happens in the press industry and if it is happening on an industrial scale? Actually, the court serves as a really important forum for us, the public, that exact same public interest that we talk about so easily in the context of press is exactly what the court is doing when it asks those kind of questions. And therefore, it's disappointing to me that the law can't compel these witnesses to attend as a key public interest matter on what remains an unresolved matter about rampant illegality in our press industry. All right, I think that's a nice place to wrap up. Thank you very much, Tom and Paul, for your excellent insights, as always. Thanks, Colette. Thanks, Colette. As ever, follow us on social media at Media Law Podcast, and we will be back with more newscasts in the weeks to come. Thanks very much. Bye.